Hey all, a quick note about this week's episode. I want to be explicit about the fact that we are, at the time of this recording, less than one day away from the U.S. presidential election. Karen and I will be discussing, among other things, an event she held with Climate Tucson last night, centering on how the environmental community here in Tucson might move forward regardless of the election result. To that end, I want to remind listeners that as an AmeriCorps VISTA, I am obligated to follow the Hatch Act, a federal law that, quote, limits or prohibits certain electoral political activities while in VISTA service. The Hatch Act's purpose is to protect federal employees and VISTA members from partisan political coercion in the workplace. Under the Hatch Act, political activity is defined as any activity directed at the success or failure of a political party, candidate, or partisan political office, or partisan political group. You may only engage in certain political activities and do so in your personal capacity on your personal time, unquote. Prohibited activities while I'm at work include expressing opinions about candidates and issues. So I'll still be asking the questions, but you'll note that my commentary may be limited. Thanks for your understanding, and on with the show. Welcome to the Tucson Climate Chats podcast, which has moved. This November 2nd recording, our 12th overall, now comes to you from occupied Tohono O'odham homelands in the Ward 3 neighborhood of Campbell Grant. As always, I am your host, Nick Spinelli, an AmeriCorps VISTA member working in collaboration with Arizona Serve, Prescott College, and Changemaker High School to demonstrate how national service can address both climate and poverty in the urban core of the Sonoran Desert. Our guest today is Karen Peterson, a Tucson-based journalist and founder of Climate Tucson. Karen, they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I hope you don't mind that the names of our projects are so similar. Welcome aboard. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Nick. Thank you for inviting me. And no, no, any kind of word we can get out about climate's fine with me. Perfect. (laughs) You absolutely had the name before I did. Um, I just thought that was funny. Okay, so I've really been looking forward to this conversation. There's a lot that we want to talk about. But first, we talked about opening with a quote, um, actually from your work as a journalist. Um, What have you got for us? Well, it's from a story, a little background that I wrote for a magazine I published in Marin County, which is just north of San Francisco, where I was living at the time, and a uh, very progressive uh, community like Tucson, very concerned about the environment and the climate. And uh, this was, I think I mentioned in 2007, this article, mm-hmm. and the headline was, Challenge Can Be Good for What Ails Us. And the interview was with a writer who had worked with the Stanford University Uh, SRI International. It was a think tank research institution and he was a writer and his his whole goal was to 
convince people that they didn't have to have the expansive lifestyles of, you know, overconsumption and and uh, all the, the the waste that goes with that, and living simply, more simply, and and happily, happily. And so he knew a lot about climate change, obviously. And he said, I'll begin with, um, his name was um, Dwayne Elgin. And so I start out with Elgin uses a rubber band as his analogy of how far our systems are being stretched toward the so-called climate change tipping point, Mm -hmm. the threshold beyond which there may be no turning back. And here's his quote, his quote, we're at the point of tension when that band is ready to pop, he says. I'm not being alarmist. It is a serious situation that will be in our face by 2020. Oh dear. (laughs) Yeah. And not 30 or 40 years from now, but 10 to 12. We have maybe 10 years to make a radical turn or we're in deep trouble. And I reread that, you know, a while back and just went, oh my gosh, that was 13 years ago. And he's talking about where we are now. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about we have 10 to 15 years, 2030 to 2035. So it was depressing for me. I had done a lot of work on it, it, education is my, my goal about with climate change and climate Tucson is all about education. And the magazine I published was all about getting the word out about climate change. And it was a depressing and shocking to realize, I knew it, but to, to really see it in print that not much had been done to change the trajectory or his rubber band um, with climate. Although I'm very encouraged from the past two years, Mm. uh, since 2018, I think that for me was not a tipping point, but a turning point Mm. in um, public, public consciousness, acceptance, even with the deniers that something's afoot. And I, um, I give credit to Greta and her trip to New York and the national news media for that, that turning point. Greta Thunberg, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and for listeners that may not be familiar, um, who is Greta and why is she you know, significant in her work? Well, she's a young Swedish activist, climate activist, who um, took it upon herself I think she was, what, 13 at the time, 13, Mm. 14, to sit in front of the Swedish, I think the parliament building with a sign saying that, you know, address climate change, you've got to do this on her own. And she just attracted attention, attracted attention. And she was um, blinders on. She had just one message that it's my world it's our world, the young people, we are act- we're activated, we're going to change it, you've got to follow us. And she stood up to power. I mean, she stood up to Trump at, at one of the UN meetings. I mean, he assailed her, She's, she just answered back, she's fearless. Um, so she was a real inspiration, not only to her generation and, and other younger um, people, but older people like me who have been working in this area, environment, especially climate change for years, it was like, thank God, you know, here's (laughs) an energetic young voice who is really bringing the message home, Um, you know, creating creating excitement, 
and um, action among the youth. Mm -hmm. So when she came to New York to go to attend a UN meeting, it was one of the climate meetings, and she had spoken before in front of the UN, uh, she chose to, to take a, a boat from Sweden hmm. so to reduce her carbon footprint. And she'd never been on a sea voyage before. I mean, and I think maybe she was 15. I mean, she's a really remarkable young woman. Right. And because I, my background is newspaper journalism, I, I, I can kind of speak to this. Um, newspapers did not have, have not been covering climate change well. I think it's a lot of it. publishers are afraid of, of too much controversy for advertising, that sort of thing. But journalists themselves have been researching it and they understand it. With her visit, it's called a hook in journalism. They had a hook to start doing stories on the climate and different aspects of climate change, which are immense, as you know. Um, so it was sort of like the dam burst. She arrived in New York on a boat for because of you know, climate footprint and carbon neutrality and all of that. And the newspapers, New York Times and the Washington Post, the national newspapers, just assailed us with stories about climate change. I saw pent up from these writers who were going, oh my gosh, I can... Huh. I'm, I can I'm finally being, talk can, about this write, thing. Oh my God, <laughs> they're going to print it. They're going to print it. And yeah. I, that really, there were so many stories and I had, I had friends that said, oh my gosh, look at how, how I hope they keep this up, but this is really frightening. So I think one, they dumped a lot of stories on us. And for a lot of people who haven't been paying attention for many reasons, it's just been, you know, just life goes on, especially the past four years. Um, it was shocking and frightening, um, but it also started the dialogue. And I think we can see it now um, four years ago, I'm jumping all over, but four years ago, the, the presidential debates, um, climate change was not brought up four years ago in the debates. This year, Biden shocked us all by stating right out front, yeah, I'm taking on the fossil fuel industry. Um, yes, um, I'm going to work, look at the uh, subsidies that the oil industry gets. I mean, that's a major statement. There are a couple of stories afterwards, like did he alienate voters? It's like, no, we, it, was, it was a beautiful thing to hear. So I think we're in good position. Kamala Harris it signed on to the Green New Deal. Um, if they win, we're on, a, we're on a path. We just have to um, make sure that they, they have a lot of things to do if they win, but that's gotta be, uh, First and foremost, I, I can go on. No, you're good. I was going to say, uh, before you do, um, I did record an intro for this episode, basically talking about how I'm constrained by the Hatch Act. So no expressing of opinions on my part about uh, different political candidates, uh, parties, whatever. However, you are not constrained by that. Um, and just in the interest of continuing to kind of build this narrative out, right. So obviously there's been a shift in the last two years. You know, it's not like this older person showed up in New York. Like you said, she was 15. She got off a boat and she's speaking at the UN. You're seeing all these climate stories suddenly flooding out of the media. You're seeing a presidential candidate talk about it. 
which I guess historically has not happened. Um, you know, where does that kind of leave us? You know, I mentioned in my I mentioned in my intro before the episode that we're one day out from the presidential election. And this event you had last night, right? This open mic with Climate Tucson. I mean, I knew we were gonna get there. Um, but I don't know, where where do you find yourself right now in November of 2020, 13 years after that article uh was written? Oh, I don't know, Earth 2, some some strange place. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Earth 2. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, we have Earth 1. We have the we have the Earth that we're going to take care of. Earth 2 is for the strange people that are um, still denying it. And I think I think a lot of people, again, I mentioned that fear. I think a lot of people were just taken by surprise with the outpouring of articles and 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 the impacts that global warming is having on our, our climate. And that's the cause of, oh, I was just reading about the largest typhoon ever to hit land land in uh, the Philippines on Sunday. Mm. Huge, huge. Um, so people are, anyway, where was I? Yeah, the reason I did bring up the Biden and the, and the presidential debate is because it's the day before this election. Right. And we had a great recession. So that was 10 years ago. We kind of pulled out of that. And then we had uh, a new president that has, I see it as a reaction. It's just reactionary to the steps we have been making in all areas of our lives. Um, Society, social justice, climate change, women's rights, men's rights, everybody. this is the backlash after the Obama administration. And it's been a devastating one. Um, over 100 environmental protections have been nixed by, by Trump. So um, when Biden gets in, when Kamala gets in, they have a lot of work to do first to clean up kind of the mess. Um, so climate too sound. Yes, I called a, a special meeting last night for, at four o'clock and just opened it up and said, if you want to come, just log in, we're on Zoom, and let's talk about what we're going to do, whether we win or lose, because we can't, we're not going to stop. Why would we stop doing what we're doing just because um, we have a <laughs> mountain ahead of us? So I didn't know if anyone would show up. It's everyone I know is like me, just a little discombobulated and, and I have a short attention span. It's been a wild year to be fair. Like, even if we step outside the realm of climate and politics, like it has just been, yeah, it's, it's a year I think many folks are feeling short on bandwidth. Um, Yeah. And I forgot all about the pandemic for a second. (laughs) Wait, pandemic. What? (laughs) I know it's, it's also, it's a very bizarre time. I mean, it was strange, you know, it was, it was a hard time during the Vietnam War, um, you know, civil rights, uh, women's rights, the environment, Earth Day was 51 years ago, 50 or 51 in this coming April. Yeah, I was a... There's been a lot going on, but this is, this doesn't compare in, 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 uh, and what I consider the danger of, of changing uh, America's focus for um, improvements in all walks of life. Mm-hmm. life. And the pandemic, along with climate change, 
has done us a favor in a way because uh, I, I could show my ignorance. I, I didn't realize the impact of the climate so desperately in uh, areas of poverty and communities of color mm -hmm. and both the pandemic and climate change by the heat, specifically we're talking about Tucson, the heat of this summer and the impact it has on the poorer neighborhoods and the elderly and people of color. So all of that is now above ground, we can see it. And that's the only way we can fight it is if we see it. Anyway, it's a meeting, right. the meeting, <laughs> sorry. Um, so I had a dozen people show up and I was, that's a good number. I wasn't expecting, I, I was expecting my friend, she might show up. And people were preoccupied with the election. Every other sentence was, well, I hope we win, I hope we win. Um, but there was consensus that, well, we just continue to do what we're doing, but we have to do it in greater numbers. We have to do it on the local community and talking about regional uh, basis. There was a lot of conversation about policy, getting involved in policy issues. Um, we're very relieved that the city of Tucson, uh, the city of Tucson declared the climate emergency. That's, that's a major step too, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a so-called red state. Um, and with deniers, there's a recall uh, petition against the mayor because of it. I don't know if you've heard about that, but one of the things they cited, besides masks, they cited that why spend all this time planting trees for climate change when we're not taking care of the potholes on the street. And that's an issue that we kind of addressed last night in the sense that there are many areas that the deniers and the, I don't know, the acceptors um, have in common that climate change is just going to exasperate um, potholes in our streets. <laughs> So we can get together, we can handle both of them. So that, that gets back to education. But last night was, it was nice. People stayed for an hour and a half and we just talked it out. And I felt good because everyone said, yes, let's keep up the education. You know, the meetings as I have been presenting them have been heavily uh, on the education side and let's grow and, and keep moving. So even in, in the, in the, possibility of darkness there's light so you know an hour and a half long conversation so clearly people have things to say about this right like it's on people's minds um i want to go back to something you said earlier and again i think this can just kind of be a launch point you know i am not a climate scientist i will not speak for your experience but this rubber band analogy especially the idea of the rubber band being stretched already to the breaking point. Do you think in 2020 that the rubber band has already broken and that we haven't even noticed? Or is it more, is it more nuanced than that? It's a good question. Um, my first, my instinct is to say it's stretched. Um, it's not nuanced. And um, you and I had this conversation previously about the term climate change mm -hmm. and that I'm trying to go back to global warming using that because that is what we're, we're facing, global warming. 
that um, we're no longer changing. We are within a climate that is in flux. It's trying to adjust itself to its new reality of carbon in the atmosphere and global warming and you know the climate is trying to adjust. And since 2017, June of 2017, we had a brutal June, we had a brutal June and it fit perfectly with what the climate scientists had been saying <clears throat> for our area, especially that we would continue to have uh, increased days of high heat, you know, 100, 102, 103, but we would have an increasing number of extreme temperature heat waves that would go into 112 and 115. Well, that June we did. I think we had two or three instances that month of three-day heat waves that were in the teens. Wow. And it was brutal. Wow. Now, this past summer, um, as we all know, um, we stayed in the hundreds uh, plus all summer. And it was the hottest July, the hottest August, I think the hottest September. The first two weeks of October were the, I think the first time in October we didn't get out of 100. I mentioned that in episode 10, actually, when I interviewed high schoolers for climate justice. I had gone down to Huachuca City for an interview, one of my only in-person interviews for the Tucson Climate Project. And it was like 98 degrees. And I'm still like in disbelief about that, not just because I didn't grow up in a place this warm, but like everything I was told, like I got here in July and people were saying to me, oh, October is a really nice time of year. And it's 98 degrees. And I'm like, I, I, I don't understand. <laughs> like, this is still really warm. I mean, even today in this, you know, apartment that I just moved into, I'm looking at my thermostat on the wall. I don't have my air on right now. It's 82 degrees in here. 82 degrees. And it's November 3rd. November 2nd. Wow. Time warp. What day is it? Oh, thanks for your patience, Karen. Anyways, continue. <laughs> I wish it were November 3rd. I want to get this over with. I want to get this. Um, yeah, and I think that really brought it home to people. I mean, if it didn't bring it home to people living in Tucson this past summer and also memories of July, and we were, we have been in a 17, 20 year drought. Mm. And last year we had a wet May and we were, the scientists were very excited that maybe we were going to push ourselves out of drought. That was last, last year. This year we're back in drought. We never left drought. So we're, we're at a place that we really need to get to work. The city has declared a climate emergency in time. And if they follow through and importantly, if we as a community follow through with them, that yes, keep doing this, how can we help? We're behind you, we support you, we'll do what you, you need us to do. Um, we can, we're not in dire straits, but we have, to, we have to accept that our climate has changed and work accordingly to live in, live in it, adapt to it. Great. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear you, you know, put some language around that. You know, obviously I've been here since July. I, I certainly have thoughts on what a warming climate looks like in Tucson. 
But in your instance, you have much deeper roots here. You've been here a lot longer than I have. What are some of the changes that you've noticed? The things that you can point to and be like, yeah, like that is different than I remember it being. Well, we can start with um, the temperature itself. I grew up in Tucson. I graduated from the University of Arizona in journalism and moved to San Francisco to start my career. Um, and then after a number of years, I moved back to Tucson and I got here in July and I went, you know, it's really hot. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, granted San Francisco is cool and that's why I left. I couldn't stand fog anymore. But so I went back through the old um, weather records online, um, did some searching. And when I was a teenager uh, in high school in late sixties, it was in June, in the 90s, most of June, it rarely got up to 100. And it rained throughout June, and that's a monsoon. And as a newcomer, I'm so sorry you missed the monsoon because it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful season, the monsoon. That's what I keep hearing. <laughs> and that's changed. And any old timer will tell you that um, in the old days, uh, the, the, mon the, the rains would start around four in the afternoon and they would cool everything down and there'd be beautiful sunsets and lightning and thunder and excitement and then they'd stop and the next day or two they'd come back it was like clockwork hmm. and that's changed and right. the city's bigger you know the city's bigger um we had a conversation with um keith lad or is it lad it's lad keith excuse me lad keith uh he's uh, with the university and he is a one of the experts on the urban heat island and that can add up to 22 degrees. You just read my mind. I was literally like sitting on a question of like, I wonder if Karen's read anything about the heat island effect and like how that might be playing out here. 22 uh, degrees. Uh -huh. What situate that number for me? Cause that's a huge number. Like oh. what? Yeah. No, I mean, I, when I heard that and I actually said that um, to him that night, is that true? I mean, was that, was that <laughs> is this accurate? <laughs> really? Um, but when you think about it, I mean, you, you, um, all of the built environment, uh, the, the asphalt, the cement, the um, buildings next to each other that, that don't allow breezes or especially areas without trees, tree canopy. Uh, I wish I could find the map. The county has a map of tree canopy across the city and you can see huge swaths of neighborhoods without much tree canopy. So that all that heat um, is hitting the asphalt, it's bouncing back up into the atmosphere, the lower atmosphere with us walking through around it. You can go out, and I tested this after um, hearing uh, his, his talk. You can go out at night, and, and, and the, yes, and the problem is that this uh, heat island effect the, stays with us during the evenings. I mean, we used to have beautiful cool summer evenings, but because of the trapped heat in our cities, that's difficult. I mean, you can walk to a park. I'm near Himmel Park. I can walk to the park and you can feel the, the temperature drop just because of the grass and the trees, but it is the asphalt. Um, swimming pools actually add temperature to the surrounding uh, areas. So, you know, all sorts of things. It, and so right. the city is larger. So we have that compounding it.
one of the things that came up at the that the uh, open mic meeting, Climate Tucson meeting last night that hadn't come up at meetings uh, that I've held, ex except in one instance. Um, people were talking about how, I mean, the responsibility that we as citizens and, and community members have, um, they, the people that were spoke yesterday, last night, were talking about living more lightly um, zero waste was a, uh, was a big issue that they wanted to hear more about. Um, that the consumerism is kind of going um, out, of, out, of, out of the ridiculous consumerism, plastic. And, and during the pandemic, we're adding to our plastic. People are throwing away the masks, you know, the one-time use masks for good reason. I mean, I'm not at all in any way opposed to masks, but um, and you know, stores are not letting us bring in our bags, our reusable bags. So we're getting more plastic. We're getting more paper. Um, so it's part of part of our responsibility is to be conscious of of how we live live on the earth. We don't have to have so much stuff. We don't have to buy just because uh, politicians say our economy is a consumer based economy. Um, we have to make those changes. And along with the idea that the climate has changed, um, we, <clears throat> we need to be really responsible as citizens to make sure that the city uh, follows through on the plans it has to reduce uh, ele electrical use, fuel use, uh, net zero, not net zero um, by 2050, I guess, or 50% by 2035, which interestingly, um, the Arizona, I think it's a corporate commission, uh, corporation commission, um, is, is forwarding the idea that all public utilities in, in the state of Arizona will be net zero by 2050 and 50% by 2035 following the city's declaration. And that would put us uh, in alignment with uh, California, with other progressive Massachusetts, other progressive states. Uh, that are doing things for the climate. So we have responsibilities. When I say that um, the rubber band is stretched, um, we have a big role to play. We can't just sit back and wait for, for government to do, a, do things. We have to be activists. We have to make sure that we keep the, their feet on the ground and work toward that. And we have a responsibility as individuals. Tucson, Pima County is, is is a really progressive area and has been. When I moved back from San Francisco, which is progressive, I was pleased, I was thrilled at what was being done here to protect the environment and all the work being done on climate and climate scientists at the University of Arizona. We're very fortunate to have those minds and those people um, who are passionate about the environment. Right. And since you have such extensive contacts up at the university, I'm wondering, um, you know, and even just perusing the Climate Tucson website, you know, you've covered so many topics. What is something from kind of that outsider's perspective, what is something that you feel the University of Arizona has really nailed in their, um, I think their presentation and their research, right? Like when they address climate, what's something that you think they're doing really well um, based on all the folks you've talked to? Well, one of the things that um, there are a couple couple things that are very impressive about University of Arizona. 
Number one, um, they were already um, experts in, in heat and drought, mm -hmm. just because of where we are. It, you know, they were studying the science of environmental science, climate science, I guess, whatever it was called earlier on. Uh, so they were already a step ahead nationwide and water issues. I mean, uh, Pima County, Tucson, we have been conserving water as individual homeowners and renters and people who live in, in, in our area. We've, we've been very good about conserving water. If you look around the city, in the old days, there were grass, you know, there's green lawns. There was even, um, they planted daffodil bulbs on, on the way up to Gates Pass at one point. I mean, it was just like- Really? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So hmm. we really changed over the years it, it, respectfully for the, our water. Mm -hmm. So we were already ahead in that, in that area. And um, one of our professors, one of our experts at the university, uh, Kathy Jacobs, has been in water, has worked on water issues in Arizona her entire career, I'd say 40 years. And she was with the Obama administration and helped launch the National Climate Assessment. Mm. And that is something that Congress approved. It comes out, I believe, every two years. So she helped launch that. And then Greg Garfin, who's also a climatologist, a noted climatologist at the University of Arizona, is an expert on the Southwest region of the United States, which, which includes, um, you know, New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada, and, and California up to the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's a huge hmm. region. And he's the expert on the Southwest. So they're really, not only are they knowledgeable after years and years of collecting data and research about heat and drought and water issues, they have participated in, in the national uh, realm of this national climate assessment. Hundreds of scientists and data analysts and, and anyone involved in this uh, prepares for, for, for decision makers, for communities, right. for governments to understand the state of the climate. So we've been in the forefront. And if I have time, I could say one quick thing about Tucson. You know, yes. Tucson. No, we okay. have uh, we have all the time. Don't worry. Like okay. I said, no meeting scheduled after this interview. I'm going to talk your ear off. No, I'm you're terrible. good. We're in a lull for outreach for the Tucson Climate Project. <laughs> Anyways, for listeners context, I've actually put a break on new outreach these upcoming two weeks because we hit our 100th interview last Thursday, which is wow. pretty exciting. I brought you up yesterday. You I did? Said, yes, when? Said, One of the exciting things that is happening is this Nick Spinelli with AmeriCorps and Vista is doing us this huge favor by, by mining all of the groups and the organizations and the people involved in environment and now climate and at that point, you had told me you had had an outreach of 79. Mm -hmm. And the, the image of the concentric circles has just stuck in my brain that you used. And that's what, for me, as organizer of Climate Tucson, I want to, you know, education is key, but also collaboration is key. So the more we 
all of these disparate groups get to know one another and communicate with one another, um, we become an even larger force for change because there's so many of us. And I, I brought that up. I just said, I'm thrilled that Nick is doing this. You're, and you're doing us a huge, huge favor. I'm glad I can help, you know, TCP as a needs assessment and network analysis, right? And for listeners, you know, Luis and I will be hopping back on the line probably early next year to update you on our progress on that front. Um, in the meantime, you know, no assumptions about how people are connected. I know this is a really remarkable community. It's just been interesting to map that, right? So thank you. Um, thank you for the boost last night in your meeting. Um, but back to talking about that community. So clearly, you know, U of A, super plugged in, a lot of cutting edge research, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as someone that's been having these conversations for a while now, do you feel that um, there's anything missing? Do you feel that there's an aspect of climate that people aren't talking about? Do you think that something is being left out of the discussion that you would like to try and address through your own work? Well, I think, um, I think as I brought up uh, earlier about how the pandemic and this past summer and the heat has given us a very clear picture of of the people in our community that um, have been overlooked, the you know the communities of color, um, and I think that's what is so important about the climate change dialogue now, is that climate is weather. We're really talking about weather, and weather has been a driver of our lives from the beginning, uh, for hunter and gatherers and early agriculturist. I mean, we pay attention to the weather. So climate affects every part of our society, every part of our individual lives. And that's what we have to, the message is, and I, I've been trying to do that with the meetings. There are so many different areas that are being impacted by climate that people didn't, I didn't realize. Um, a case in point, and I brought this up so many times and, and it just really affected me um, is the mobile, the manufactured housing, uh, mm. people living in substandard trailers in Tucson and one out of 10 housing units in Tucson is a manufactured house. You know, it's a mobile home wow. or older trailers and they're fine. And there's nothing, you know, they're fine. Um, they also provide, you know, um, affordable housing but where they aren't fine is the any trailer built before 1976, I believe, when when federal regulations on um, power sources, what, what do you call it, um, air conditioning wiring, that sort of thing, mm. and, and so these these trailers have substandard wiring, so they can't use the air conditioning units, they can't use the cooling systems that are on the market now. It's too much for the electrical systems of these older trailers. And the people living in these trailers are often elderly or on very low fixed incomes. They can't afford the electricity, they end up having to have a whole bunch of fans going. Um, and there is an inordinate number of deaths, uh, in-home in deaths during the summer uh, the people living in these trailers. And it's all because of um, 
wiring is all because of how they're constructed. And that is, and that's a regulation. That is something that we could petition. It has to be a national petition to change those uh, regulations. So that, that's very hurtful. I thought about this summer. We had more, Arizona had double the number of heat related deaths this summer than last year. Wow. And for in ever, I mean, it's the highest number. And again, um, there's a University of Arizona professor, uh, Mark Keir, K-E-A-R, and he is working with uh, colleagues at Arizona State University and in Maricopa County, identifying the neighborhoods. And um, so they're doing research uh, in, in an area that we don't suspect, we don't think of necessarily with like climate science, but there's social science, there's, all, there's many realms. Great. I'm actually hoping to interview Mark here for the climate project. Thanks to oh. you. Many thanks for the, uh, yeah, the recommendation there. Um, and so sort of thinking about that social dimension and how it has all these different impacts on our lives. Um, well, actually two questions. One is just nuts and bolts. Do you know what the actual number was for the death toll offhand from heat related deaths this summer? The last figure I had, and it had increased, I'm sure, but it was around August, was 267. Wow. I can look that up. I can verify that, but like that, wow. You know, I had it in my head. You were going to be like 12 or like 37, yeah. 200, was it 267? Yeah. And this is statewide. Right. And, and of that course was the only pandemic in August. Increased, not increased the death, but increased the problems of cooling centers mm -hmm. and, and, you know, groups in a cooling center. So did the Bighorn fire. Uh, right. I had a, I had a, a climate Tucson meeting with a, um, a University of Arizona professor who was a, uh, a expert on fires. And he gave us a rundown of what was going on with the Bighorn Fire in the Catalinas. And the fact that they were having evacuations in the foothills. And I was on the sheriff's website looking at the tweet, Twitter feed. And the woman was saying that her mother was in an evacu evacuation zone for the fire and was af more afraid of going to the cooling center and being exposed to COVID-19 than she was of the fire. Wow. Talk about between a figurative rock and a hard place. Right. Oh, absolutely. Her daughter was beside herself. I mean, it's like, I can't get my mother to leave because she's more afraid of the pandemic of, of the virus than the flames coming down the foothills. Great. Wow. Um, you know, what a, world. <laughs> what a world, what a what year. A and we still have two more months to go before we turn the calendar to 2021. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit this is like super squishy qualitative stuff, but tell me a little bit about the mood in the Zoom room last night. Do you feel that folks in your network are hopeful right now? Or are they anxious? And I'm speaking generally, not just, you know, not so much about the election tomorrow, but just, you know, where they're at, either in their work or with processing all of these things happening to us. What's, uh, what's the mood out there? How are people feeling? It was, um, it's a good question. It was, superstitious 
Mm. I'm going to say superstitious. Interesting. They, were, they, they really believe that in, in a Biden outcome, but they're terrified because most everyone felt the same way four years ago. So it's a, it's a knock on wood kind of. Um, but there was no diminishment in our conversation about steps in climate change. Again, uh, we had a nice conversation about uh, zero waste and a good conversation about areas that we could um, work on, that we could work on uh, changing the regulations and working in policy areas. Anyway, the mood was cautiously hopeful, but superstitious about saying so, <laughs> um, but not, but not at all diminished in terms of whatever happens, um, we're not gonna stop working for the climate. We'll just have to work harder. Right. Um, and there are obstacles and, and good things come from obstacles as well as um, an, an easy entry. And just because Biden would win doesn't mean we can relax. We still have to work. Right. And along that, you know, kind of theme, I saw the headline for your event was win or lose, we have work to do. Um, what do you see as being the way forward right now or the ways forward from where we are in regards to climate? In regards to climate. Um, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to speak again, harping on what uh, I want with Climate Tucson and its education. I think the more, I truly believe that the more that people no, the more that people hear from um, non-threatening, in a non-threatening atmosphere. I mean, Climate Tucson meetings are kind of like a master class or a graduate study course or something. I mean, they give, they have the graphs and they, they give the science and they talk about it and there's a Q&A and we ask a lot of questions. It's non-threatening. Um, there's not a lot of political rallying at all. We don't, we're, we don't talk politics. So I think it's important that people um, feel safe to talk about it. People understand, anyone living in Tucson, even if they don't want to believe it, feel it. They understand that things are changing. I'm gonna quickly hearken to my 88 year old uncle who's a Republican evangelical Christian in Southern Missouri, a Trump supporter. And um, who this year is did not vote for Trump. I find that as a bellwether. But he's a hunter. He's been in the woods for years and years and years. He understands nature. Uh, a decade ago, when I was doing my climate work um, with the magazine, he said, "Oh, I know that climate's changing. I can see it. I can feel it." So, from his observations of being in in nature. So I think it's just a matter of non-threatening conversations and showing people that there are things they can do. Uh, and never, never diminish again that word, the, the, the impact we have on a personal basis in our everyday lives. Make a conscious decision to walk and not drive, for instance, when we can. Not turn on the air conditioning when it's 82 degrees in the house. Um, 83.5 now I'm still, <laughs> but I know what you're saying. I'm just looking at my thermostat and I'm like, Ooh. Yeah, I know. you'll get used to it. Yeah. You'll totally. get used to it. I mean, there are just conscious things. I mean, um, 
the worst thing in the world is the plastic pollution. I mean, and that, I don't know how we're gonna ever stop that. That, that to me is the worst of the, of the many impacts um, on our environment and our health. I mean, plastics are, and you know, plastic is a um, petroleum product. So uh -huh. that just, you know, increases our need for um, fossil fuels. Plastics are in everything. They're, they're in lipstick. They're in golf balls. I was I mean, just reading an article the other day about washing your synthetic clothing. And no, that is not just limited to me and my gear elitism. I'm poking a little bit of fun at myself here and my Patagonia fleece. You wash that and all those fibers are suddenly, they're in the ground, they're in the water supply. Those are all going down the drain. But I believe the same is true for any piece of synthetic clothing, whether that's, you know, again, uh, Under Armour gear, yoga pants, whatever. You know, I think just anecdotal data, I've seen a lot more people wearing things like that in the last 10 years or so. Apparently that's super duper bad, not good. Um, to be washing those pieces of clothing, because again, like you said, all those microfibers, they're so hard to trace. How are you ever going to get them back? Well, you're not going to. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, again, that's, that's the, the huge story under the tip of the iceberg is that um, what we're using in our everyday lives that we don't pay any attention to that are actually damaging. And that's education. And that's, um, I mean, I didn't hear about, I don't know about the synthetic fibers. That's disgusting. You know, so it's like that to me is, is the big problem, the huge problem. And it's an American problem. It's, a, it's, it's China, any, any nation can uh, be doing that sort of pollution. So I don't know what to do about that. Right. That'll be, uh, that'll be the follow-up conversation between you and I uh, later when we uh, tackle other problems in the world. <laughs> That's right. When we um, solve all when the we solve, in the world. Right. <laughs> um, so thinking about starting to wrap this thing up, and of course, you know, doors always open uh, for other commentary if there's anything else you want to touch on. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, in your work, um, you know, what is your, aside from education, what do you think your biggest focus is right now? What are you, um, what are you going to be putting your time and energy into over the coming weeks and months? Um, with Climate Tucson? Or just generally, I think both. Definitely. Well, Climate Tucson is my passion. Um, so one of the, I mean, I work, I still work. So that's why Climate Tucson not, hasn't, it's a year old. Climate Tucson is a year old. Um, now, uh, as of this month, or as of October. Happy and birthday. I, I know, I'm so excited, <laughs> I'm so thrilled. And I've had 17 or 18 speakers over the past year. There are so many topics to cover. Plastic is one. I'm really curious about why we have so much wind. Um, that's one of the things I noticed when I moved back that I've never remembered such blustery wind in the spring and the fall, wind portends, um, you know, fronts coming in. It's you know, it's a change in weather. Right. So I want to anyway. So I want to grow Climate Tucson. I want to expand it to include, um, like you. I would love for you to be a speaker and and tell us what you've learned from speaking to a hundred different people involved in environment and climate. 
Um, I'm, I'm setting up hopefully collaborations, co-sponsorships with, with other groups so that we can share. Uh, I want people to know that if they are interested in, in zero waste, that uh, sustainabletucson.com has a, a, a committee on zero waste. I wanna make sure that Climate Tucson is an education hub that also includes education about other groups that you can get involved with. Um, maybe you're, you're more into activism. So here are some groups for that. Um, so that's, that's my goal with Climate Tucson. I'm very energized by the response I've had to Climate Tucson and the generosity of all of the people who have spoken. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I know as a journalist is that people like to talk about what they do, their work. Um, so if you give them a forum to go for it, just tell us, tell us all about um, the urban heat island. Uh, tell us about monsoon season today and the, yesterday and in the, in the future. They're willing and more than happy to have an attentive audience, audience which Climate Tucson members are. Right. I love it. And hopefully in the springtime when I start, you know, or finish rather some data crunching and I actually have uh, along with everybody else, something to show you for all my efforts these last few months. Don't worry, there will be lots of collaboration. You know, one, one thing I'm gonna add, um, I'm working on, I, I, I think I'm, it's a project that I proposed, a project proposal I have because I do, like I said, I work um, in, in publishing and communications area. And I'm putting together a, a book, a, a book of photographs about Wild Marin, that's the title. And this woman has photographed the nature, the, the open spaces in uh, Marin for years. And I feel that this is a time to start documenting what we have, whether it's through photographs or journals or stories or diaries or recordings. I think we need to start documenting this time in our history because it's a very important time in our history and that it should be available for generations to come to understand what we're doing and, and why we're going through it and what we want to do to change the course of, of the world for those generations that may be reading or looking at the images we're creating now. Right. Ah, that's awesome. What a big question to leave us all with. A good question, but a big question. Um, anything else for the record before we close up shop? No, other than, okay, one last thing. Yeah. But whenever we're able to get go into places again comfortably, I encourage everyone to take the tour of the Tree, Link, tree Ring Laboratory on the University of Arizona campus because I don't think anyone really knows how important trees have been to climate science. It's called the science of dendrochronology. Oh, yes. It was founded at the University of Arizona in the 1930s. It is of us. It is from us. Um, and it's a way of uh, much more sophisticated than carbon dating. And it has allowed climate scientists to understand because of the tree rings, they record fires. The tree rings record um, 
years of drought, years of great rains, years of less rain. So we have been able to use trees and bless their hearts to um, quantify and qualify all our climate science. So the tree ring lab is a must stop, must, must see stop on any tour of Tucson. I think that's great. I'm, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, actually one of my faculty from my first year in grad school up in Wyoming, Dr. Kevin Krasnow. Uh, Kras did a lot of his research with dendrochronology in the Eastern Sierras, actually up by Lake Tahoe. And I don't know, probably spent three or four years wandering around in the woods with a chainsaw, um, cutting these fire scars and doing a lot of research related to what you just talked about. I had no idea that it was like a museum though, and that that started here. Yeah. It's not a museum. It's a working lab. There you go. Even better. And underneath it, um, it first, it started out in a big vault basement underneath the stadium and moved into this beautiful new building on campus. And it's a working lab. And according to the docent, you get the docent tour and it's fascinating and it's wonderful. According to the docent, there is not a science that we have that does not call on dendrochronology to date um, the data. So it's a wonderful, beautiful science and it makes you want to hug trees even more. Than <laughs> <hug this> <laughs> uh, I think that is a good note to end on. That concludes today's chat about climate poverty and service here in Tucson, Arizona. You can find new episodes of the Tucson Climate Chats podcast on Fridays at anchor.fm forward slash Tucson dash climate dash chats or on Spotify and most other major audio distributors. Like the show, comments, questions, compliments, concerns, smart remarks. Feel free to email me, Nick, at nspinelli, S-P-I-N-E-L-L-I at arizonaserve.org. And gratitude to each and every one of you for the opportunity to do this work as well as support yours. Onwards. Mm -hmm.